<sighs> well, today, as I said, we're starting something new. And do you ever do something that makes you feel kind of a little uncomfortable? Have you ever chosen, you know, on purpose to do that? That's what I'm doing right now. When I come up here, I'm fairly comfortable with this part, but I've been processing this and I've been thinking about this. I've been reading about it. I've been studying. I've been praying. I've been discussing more focus for probably the last three years, but certainly more intentionally for the last year. I have had this date on the calendar for more than 15 months. It's hell. No one likes hell. I'm pretty sure you don't like hell. Uh, you don't like the idea of it. You don't want people talking about it. Anybody that you come across who seems to have any kind of interest in the concept of hell, we all kind of want to just stay away from that person, right? And yet here I am. And here you are. Today we start looking into hell. Concept of hell, uh, it's one of the greatest stumbling blocks for Western people. We don't like it. For some of, some of us, it's a deal breaker. Peter Kreft, he wrote, of all the doctrines in Christianity, hell is probably the most difficult to defend, the most burdensome to believe, and the first to be abandoned. Maybe you agree with Peter too. Many are appalled at the idea of a place of punishment for those who don't trust Christ. Their reaction is more than just doubt. It's more like repulsion of the whole concept. And as you might expect, throughout history, there has been more than one view of hell expressed. It's not a universally agreed-upon doctrine in terms of all the details. There have been numerous takes on, uh, on hell and with varying degree of support um, throughout history, throughout the centuries, really. So let me wow you right now with a bit of a summary of some of those beliefs. There's called uh, conditional immortality. There's annihilationism. There's restorationism, universalism, concentric, purgatory, traditional, literal, eternal, conscious, torment, metaphorical, separationism. Is it eternal in impact? Does it mean permanent? Does it mean unending? Is there a hell at all? Hell presents uh, multiple obstacles for uh, people and raises so many questions. Maybe these are some of your questions. How can an all-loving God judge people? Why does God condemn people eternally for what they do in a finite amount of time? Why is it necessary for hell to invoke a kind of torture like eternal fire or brimstone, etc.? Have you ever wrestled with these questions? Or do you just like not to think about them at all? Has anyone ever asked you questions like that? How can you believe? When they did, did you feel like you had a good answer to those questions? Did you feel like you had any 
answers to them? Do you think that there's actually good answers for any of those questions? Do they even exist? You know, I believe that there are good answers, explanation, there's ways of understanding that when you study the Scriptures, you discover a logic, there's a rationale for hell that, well, it just might not have been clear before. And as he has in so many other places before, you know me, I love C.S. Lewis. I think the guy is brilliant and he wrote so well. He summarizes it well in this. He says, there is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially our Lord's own words. It has always been held by Christendom and it has the support of reason. Reason? you say, well then, tell me more. Tell me some of these reasons. There's something about how we picture hell, and different people picture it in different ways. So frequently, we come up with a type of person, a certain type of person. You know, it's their description of hell when they're talking about it. They smile, and they talk about, it's going to be great. I'm going to be hanging out with all my friends. Oh, it'll be great. I'll be finally hanging out with all the cool people and not the boring people. Thank you. I'll be doing what I want. Total freedom! Ah, finally free. Now I can do everything that I want to do and all of those things that God has been holding me back from. You know what? Hell is an inaccurate, ridiculous idea. We don't even need to worry about it. And there's another angle comes discussions, uh, more depictions of hell, and here we, uh, we get a little bit more of the attitude rolling, okay? Talking about hell kind of feels powerful, right? It feels tough, heavy with bad boy, bad girl, heavy metal, anti-establishment imagery, makes us feel strong, cool, and powerful. You're not going to tell me what to do. You know, it's that rebellious ne'er-do-well who gets away with it all. It's rock and roll, baby, finally free. Hell is perfectly within my lifestyle. Darkness, decadence, and debauchery, the triple D of rebellious good times. But that's not the way that I first really encountered the idea of hell. I mean, I'd seen those kinds of things from a distance, but they didn't really have any interest for me. That was not appealing. I was kind of yelled to people and hell to each other. It's, it's, it's a problem for Christians in general to deal with, to understand and to receive their own faith, to make it their own, and, and then to figure out how you might speak about that to other people. We tend to mimic what we've heard. And in into one, we regularly speak about faith as a pursuit, a lifelong pursuit. It's an earnest pursuit of Jesus, after Jesus, towards Jesus, day after day, year after year. It is not faith as a single prayer a single moment in time, and a moment that might have been under duress. One of those strategies leads towards growing maturity. The other one leads to ongoing immaturity. The presentation uh, that night at camp was driven by the idea that fear would motivate people toward long-lasting faith in Christ, which, and this doesn't take much in the way of analysis to see, doesn't work well, long-term, right? Fear is a classic motivator, right? It favors power, favors control, not genuine heart change, not motivated life-giving interest. So don't get me wrong. It's not as though you can't motivate people through fear. 
And you even see it throughout Scripture. There's a reverent respect for God. And His judgment on sin is one reason why we respond to His mercy and trust. We, we accept His offer of forgiveness because we understand we need it. Proverbs 9, chapter, uh, Proverbs 9 verse 10, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Respect. Honor. But presentations like the one that I got at camp that summer, they elevate fear as the primary, as the exclusive reason to trust in Christ. It's a bait and switch. It's not about respect. It's not about love. It's not about loyalty. It's just be afraid. Moreover, when fear is our motivation, it will rarely, if ever, translate into a life of discipleship. Mishandling this doctrine of hell and the reality of God's judgment on our sin can even damage a person's faith, as I have unfortunately witnessed over and over again in my life. So what is hell? What's its purpose? Is it a place? Is it forever? Is it real? Should we fear it? What, what, what does it look like? How should Christians talk about it? And that's what we're going to do for the next couple of weeks. So it's not a, just a, a one-shot inoculation, one and done. This is an area of study that should impact the way in which we live. This is part one of three to be treated as a single sermon, if you will. Part one of three, the units, they are not separate parts. At the end of the third episode, this will not be a fully explained and understood doctrine, okay? Hell will be something that you need to think through. You need to pray through it. You need to ask for insight from the Holy Spirit to guide you. Work at discerning. Come into grips with this big, important, and unpleasant concept. Like anything that you do, not liking it doesn't make it go away. Episode 1, looking into hell, darkness, debauchery, and decadence. That's what I called it. So who wouldn't want to spend some time looking at that, right? So let's take a peek. Where do we get the idea of hell? Where does that come from? Who brings it up? Jesus. Jesus, the teacher of hell. One reason, and it is a big one, one reason that we need to talk about hell is that it's not simply a peripheral issue. It's connected closely with the person of Jesus and His teaching. So I can sympathize with the well-known atheist Bertrand Russell when he says, there is one very serious defect to my mind in Christ's moral character, and that is he believed in hell. Now, I agree with his understanding that the rejection of hell entails a rejection of Jesus. If we want to answer the question, why hell? Then we need to look at Jesus. We look at Jesus all the time anyways. We need to keep looking at him in this area as well. What did he think about hell? What did he teach about hell? Did it ever come up? And I say this, it's important about Jesus because most people in the Western world, well, they like Jesus. They don't really like Christians necessarily, but they like Jesus. They like him. They like all the love talk. And he, he, was, a, <coughs> he, 
Even New Age thinkers like Deepak Chopra, they write books about Jesus as a mystic, as a guru of Eastern religion. And some Christians talk about being red-letter Christians because they want to emphasize obedience to the specific teachings of Jesus in the Bible, prioritizing those over the writings of Paul, over the rest of the New Testament. People, they often say that they don't like the Old Testament God. I mean, that guy seems kind of angry and full of wrath. He's always punishing people. Well, that's what sometimes people think. And people are generally warmer in their impression of the New Testament because of Jesus. They like Jesus, who seems to be more about love and grace and teaching helpful spiritual ideas. The problem with that is that it's not entirely true. We get most of our theological understanding of hell not from the Old Testament, but from the words of Jesus. And all of this talk about eternal punishment, it's not in the Old Testament, it's in the New Testament. We don't get a clear, refined doctrine of hell in the Bible until we get to Jesus. And He is the one who most explicitly and directly taught about its existence and its nature. So if you divide up uh, the teaching of Jesus into various subjects, about 13%, I didn't do that calculation myself, about 13% of Jesus' teachings and His parables are about hell, judgment, punishment, and the wrath of God. Here's some examples, stuff that maybe you've heard from Jesus. Start with Matthew 25, verse 41. Then He will say to those on the left, depart from Me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark chapter 9, verse 43, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands and go into hell where the fire never goes out. Verse 48, where the worms that eat them do not die and the fire is not quenched. If you want to get rid of hell, then you're going to have to get rid of Jesus. And that's the irony. If we're going to say that the love of God was emphasized to a greater extent by Jesus in the New Testament, we have to also acknowledge that the wrath of God also gets ratcheted up in the New Testament. We can't escape the fact that hell, just as much as love and the grace of God, is a central New Testament, Jesus-driven teaching. So we like alternative beliefs, alternate beliefs. Several modern presuppositions, our cultural sensitivities skew our ideas about hell. And it's worth thinking about why. Why are we repulsed by the idea of hell? Why would we want to hold an alternate belief like that there is no hell? Or why we tend to believe that our assumptions and beliefs about God the world, what is right and what is wrong, what's good for God to do, what's not good for God to do. Why would our ideas be more correct than what the Bible has written or what Jesus Himself taught? Ideas tend to be products that, uh, that develop from the culture that you're in. And in this case, most of you uh, watching here at Church on Main Street High, 
or church online, hi, most of you are Western educated, postmodern, democratic people. That's a cultural context that informs and influences our beliefs about hell. Undoubtedly, we, we, we didn't even necessarily see that we're doing it. But you have beliefs that have been indoctrinated into you over your whole life. They may or may not come from the Bible, and most of them won't come from the Bible, but they are the results of voices that have been given authority in your life, your education, your family, your religious life, your upbringing, Grey's Anatomy, The X-Files, Don Cherry, maybe even Howard Stern. You have a whole set of beliefs that you bring to the table, which in this case cause you to dislike or even be repelled by a particular view of the universe. But, the big but, but being repelled by hell or any other Christian doctrine is not enough to prove that it's not real or that it doesn't rationally make sense. It just means, and let's be honest, it just means that you don't like it. But not liking something is not a sufficient way of discerning what is true or false. No, we certainly need to examine how we feel, but we need to push a little deeper. Why? Why don't we like it? What is it about it? What alternate beliefs do we hold that we need to examine and to question? <coughs> I don't like hell. I don't like the idea of it. I know students that I have mentored for years that were enthusiastic, vibrant in Christian faith that have decided that they don't like hell, so they can't be a Christian anymore. It seems like it, it, it's an okay thing for them to now give up everything based on how they feel. They give up all of Christianity without ever engaging in its rationale, any evidence. They gave it all up as if it was worth nothing because they have met with a pushback alternate beliefs that they weren't prepared for. And they feel this way, not all the time, but frequently, because they have a boyfriend, because they have a girlfriend. That person doesn't take Jesus as seriously. If hell is real, then there is a possibility that these people that they care for might just be destined for a Christless eternity in hell. And they don't like the idea of that. Not liking it is something that I fully understand, I can fully appreciate. So they decide that nothing about any of the rest of Christianity is valid. And I know these people. I've spoken to these people. I love these people. These people, I have shared history with them for years and years. But there's no discussing it when it comes to matters of the heart. I like this person. But liking the person doesn't make anything else more right or more wrong. It honestly becomes a distraction just from thinking clearly, being honest. Others have family members that have chosen to not be involved in the earnest pursuit of Jesus, and they, they don't think it's fair for their beloved family members, as they put it, to get in trouble from God. Let me make this clear. I am not in charge of who does or does not go to heaven, all right? It's not in my job description. I can't grant you clemency. I hope, I genuinely hope that I will see all kinds of unexpected people in heaven. 
My hope is that God works in ways that are far more mysterious than I can explain. And I love my God for His creativity and His passionate love that seeks. Over my life, study of Scripture and Christianity, I've always encountered ideas, regularly encountered ideas that were very counterintuitive to my views at the time. And there's a frequent pang of uneasiness that surrounds the doctrine of hell. I've been shocked by it but recognize that some of my objections are cultural ones, born out of sensibilities and ideals I have because I was, I am, a 21st century white, middle-class, educated Westerner with all the accompanying perks that I'm not even aware of at times. It all shapes the way I think. And I worried that I was allowing my ethnocentric understandings to take priority over the teaching of Jesus in the Bible. So I forced myself over time to try and see through the repulsion to understand the Bible's teaching in context. I realized that there's a logic and a justification for hell that makes sense of God, makes sense of humanity and the universe itself. Before we get to the what and the why of the Bible's teaching on hell, I want to look at a few of the most popular objections people have against it. I want you to see and to hear perhaps your own thoughts, perhaps questions that you have been raised. So before we look at episode three, which is the other side, before the other side, our next episode is called, Yeah, But What About? It's such a popular way to engage in discussion these days, right? What about-isms? Yeah, but what about? So to get started with that, that's episode two, but I'm going to give you a teaser for today. To get started with that, here's the first one, because it just kind of ties in with what we started looking into today. The number one alternate belief is that hell is repulsive. We hinted at this one, but it's worth repeating. We must distinguish between liking or disliking something and whether the thing is true or not. It doesn't feel good. If you've ever had to fire someone from a job, it doesn't feel good to do that, right? But it still might be the right thing to do. On the other hand, there are things, sometimes they feel good, but they're not right. I saw an interview once with the founder of the website and the service called, and this is going to shock you because you didn't know this was out there, the service called adultery.com. It's an entire business given to helping couples cheat on their spouses for the sake of cheating on their spouses. They don't do it together. They were arguing that people in adulterous relationships report that it is pleasurable and feels good. The variety, the thrill, the danger, the wrongness of it, the romance of it all is something he said that we should all live for and should stop holding ourselves back from. But the fact that it feels good doesn't make it right. Very few cultures are going to say adultery is acceptable, especially if you're the one getting cheated on and not the one doing the cheating. The point being, just because I don't like something, in this case the doctrine of hell, doesn't change whether or not it's true. Now, please remember, we are in the midst of of a discussion here. We are not done. This is what we call episode one. It is part one of a longer sermon that has three weeks to it, all right? There's lots more to come, and it might not always be fun, but hopefully it will help you to engage in thought and study and prayer. It will help us also get ready to begin the countdown by the end of November, the countdown to Christmas, and then we'll be in a good place to consider our need for a Savior. 
Not just the need, uh, but, the, but the wonder and the beauty and the possibility of God at work on our behalf. So there is a larger plan. We talk about hell for a while. We talk about some of the problems with hell. What does hell look like? And then when we get to the end of that, Advent will start. And then together as a community, we will count down. We will anticipate. We will long for the coming of our Savior. We will prepare ourselves so that when Christmas arrives, we will be in a state ready to receive God's gift for us. Not just in a state of presence. There is a Christian truth that kind of gets lost in the preparation for Christmas. And that's why I know I need help sometimes getting ready for it. It's on the calendar. I know it's coming. It's a Christian thing. I do it. It's like my job. But sometimes I forget for me. And we can program. We can schedule. We can tell the story. But we miss the whole thing. We miss the sense of longing that existed before the first coming of Christ the darkness that was in the culture, the longing, the begging that had gone on. God, send us a Savior. You promised Messiah. We're ready for Messiah. I want to help you be ready this year for Messiah. So we're going to talk about something that's dark and important and heavy, but it is definitely part of a pathway to get you prepared for Christmas. That's the plan. That's where we're going. That's why it lines up with this time. And I hope that you'll come back. I hope that you'll come back to hear, yeah, but what about? And then I hope you'll come back after that to hear the other side. So we get this picture of hell, maybe not completely settled, but we'll get it at least in a place where we can think about it without having to just turn our brains away. And so that's what we ask. We ask God that He would speak to us, that He would be involved in our together time. Whether you're at church online or church on Main Street, it doesn't matter. The goal is that we would together prepare. You do a lot of things by yourself and on your own. God did not call you to be by yourself and on your own for spiritual things. He called us to be together, to wrestle together to hear the discomforts of each other and then encourage each other with these words. Do you remember that prophecy we just talked about? Encourage each other with these words. How can you encourage each other with these words if you're never around to hear what anyone else thinks? We are together to discern. We are together walk towards Jesus in earnest pursuit of Him. That's the plan. That's where we're going. I hope you'll come back and join us. Father, thank you for the way that you have set in motion your world. The beautiful creation that we see around us. The beautiful people that we see around us. And because your love for them, for us, is so great, you couldn't bear for us to be separated from you by our own actions, through our own ignorance, through our own disobedience, through our own waywardness. <coughs> So you set up a plan. You had a strategy. You had a rescue plan. I know they're going to need help. And I know they can't do it on their own. That's why I'm going to intervene. I'm going to provide hope. 
and a future. I'm going to let them have my son, Jesus. I'm I'm going to let Jesus come and teach and live in the midst of the dirt and the muck and the pain and the betrayal. And they can watch how he lives. And then, then they'll have an example. They'll have a reference point. They'll have a story they, they can go back to. We don't all have to just behave like this. We, can, we could behave like Jesus behaved. We could, we could live like he lived. We could want that. We can see the hope that's in that. And then when Jesus died, the things that he opened up for us that we had no idea that we needed. Oh, God, thank you. Thank you for the kindness and grace that you showed, that you continue to display. Help us to see that as we continue in earnest pursuit of you. Thank you. Thank you for what you have done on our behalf and continue to do on our behalf. Take us forward into this week wise, wisely informed that we might live in such a way that we would honor you, we would respect the people around us, and we would call these people to a different way of living, not through our wagging finger and our angry declarations, but by our lives showing that there is a story that is alternate. We'll tell them the truth, and we have the opportunity, and we will continue to point towards Jesus, our hope and our future. Bless these, my friends, now I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.